For those of you who are new or who have been here in the last six weeks, well, if you're here last week, you, uh, um, uh, me. Um, <laughs> but uh, other than that, you may never have met me before. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm one of the David Robinsons here. Not all of them are related, but somehow I ended up in one church. And it is good to see you. It is good to have you with us this morning. We are, we love each other. We love the body of Christ. We love the fact that we have an opportunity here in one of the few places left in the world where people actually get together, love each other, try to treat each other well, try to get along with each other, uh, want to be together, aren't always looking at our phones instead of talking to each other and all that good stuff. And so uh, the church is Christ's body. And if you are new or you have been visiting or you're online and thinking about it, you are invited. There is a reason why God has brought you here or brought you to start watching us online. And it is likely because he is drawing you to be part of a family and part of his body. And there is nothing like knowing that you have a family, especially when you're going through stuff, um, and to be able to help others when they go through stuff when I don't feel well or when I'm going through things, or I'm going through spiritual warfare, I'm going through physical warfare, whatever the thing happens to be, and knowing that I have a family and a body here at Acts Church is beyond what I could be thankful for. And so we are glad to have you here. I want you to be welcome. I want you to know uh, that we hold the Bible in very high esteem. I traveled to, as I said, we were in, in the UK. We went to a lot of these old churches. Beautiful. Beautiful churches. I mean, you can't believe it. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Very old. And I mean, the, amount, the years that it would have taken to carve every little thing into the stonework and so on in these, in these uh, churches, many of which are pretty much empty now. But one of the things that they do is a lot of these churches, they have the, the pulpit where the, where the preacher speaks. You have, you have to walk up, and it's like way up high up here, right? And so the the person who's going to preach got to go up the stairs and they got to stand up there and they got, to, and they got this nice, uh, you know, pulpit thing. And it's usually it's got an eagle on it because there in the UK that represents the word of God. And so there they go and they get up high. And, and the reason they do that isn't to elevate the preacher. Isn't to say, oh, hey, look at this guy. See, we do that a little too much, I think. We get a little too into the celebrity thing. And care a little bit about who much who is the one who's preaching. Uh, they got into that in the New Testament. So, hey, send us Apollos. We want to hear Apollos. Apollos was like the celebrity preacher of the time. He's apparently this great preacher. And so, oh, send us Apollos. And he'll come when he feels like it. That was kind of the, the idea uh, that Paul was sent back. Um, the point being that it's not about the preacher. The reason that's so high up, the reason that the centerpiece of the church then and of the church now is the pulpit is because the pulpit holds the word of God. And this, the word of God, is what drives the church. The word of God drives the church. So I can be gone. That's why I can be gone for six weeks or I can get hit by a bus. And it doesn't matter because another person will come up here that God has called to teach and preach the word of God. It's not about a preacher. The center of the church is the cross, but the center of the life of the church is in the pulpit because the pulpit holds the word of God. And I want you to understand something if you're new. We believe the word of God is true. 
if you have heard that it's not, because you saw a Discovery Channel documentary, some guy with weird hair who said, this is all lies, they all made it up. Those people are insane. That's not true. Historically, ridiculous to suggest this is the most well-attested, I mean, by orders of magnitude, the most well-attested ancient document in the world. There is no document that has undergone the scrutiny of the Bible and has come out standing. There is a reason why two billion people all over the world today are likely in a setting something like this. Some of them are hiding in places like China, maybe in India, some other places, certainly in the Middle East. They're hiding together so that they can worship God and do something like what we're doing today. And the reason they're still doing it after so many people have tried to bring this down is because it has stood. And so we believe in it, and this is, where, this is what drives our life. When we talk about submission, like we talked about today, we're talking about being submitted to God, the will of God, our Father, not the ways of man. Not the ways of man. You need to understand that there is an incredibly strong pressure for you to be conformed by the world, for you to be conformed into the ways of man. In Romans, I don't have this verse to go up on the thing, but there are Bibles in front of you, in the, in the rows in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, or as I say sometimes, if yours is broken, and if you haven't been reading it, that might be why, might be broken. Take what these are not broken. These are good Bibles. You can take these home with you and start reading the Word of God. We think it's important for you to have in your home. You can also use it right now. This verse isn't gonna be up on the screen, but this is what it says in Romans 12, verse one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Sorry, I'm getting old. Oh, that's nice. Oh, they, they have sharp lines on them. That's, I thought they were all fuzzy words. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What, what's reasonable? I've been saved. Could not have saved myself. Deserve death. Deserve hell. If you're like, oh, you're not that bad. Yes, I am. I promise you. I promise you that my heart was as wicked as any man that has ever lived. Chief of sinners, and the Lord saved me out of it. And what is my reason? What's the reasonable thing to do at that point? Well, it's to give myself back to the one who saved me, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what are we about? We are about being transformed transformed into God's will and view and truth, not conformed by the world. And what is happening, what has always happened, and what is happening in spades now is that conformity or the pressure to conform is no longer just something sort of happening out there in the air, but not but not physically and not, not, nobody's, nobody's really doing anything or sort of persecuting the conformation, that's all ended now. Whether it's cancel culture, whether it's protest, whether it's people, whether it's you can't get your, a job in this place or that place, whether it's whatever it happens to be, all the ways that it's showing itself, what the world is saying is you will conform. You will conform. And what the Christian says is I will be transformed. I will not conform. And more and more as time goes on, 
as the, if the Lord tarries much longer, more and more, you will be asked to conform. And you will have to make a choice whether you have surrendered your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord and whether you are going to push away conformity and be transformed. That's what it's going to come down to. So we've been in this series that we started before I left. First time I think I've done started the series, taken six weeks and then come back to it. But you all remember what I said last time, so it's fine. We can go right into it, I think. But it's called Truth for Thinkers, and we're talking about, you know, I've done these skeptics series, uh, uh, preaching series in the past, where I talk about sort of the things that the world, the objections the world has and things like that. So we talk about like the problem of evil, you know, the existence of God, the reliability of Scripture. And some of that's going to come up, but what we have to start with, we got to start somewhere. One of the things you got to understand about a teaching pastor is a teaching pastor is not a TED Talk pastor. Okay. A TED Talk pastor will have this really great thing, and it'll be relatively short, and it'll be punchy, and it'll have a few points, and they'll come, and it's a one-off. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes having a pastor come in and do that can be incredibly encouraging, whatever. But with a teaching pastor, this is for life, folks, for as long as the Lord has called you here. So sometimes I've got to set things up so that I can continue to refer to them over time. And this morning is one of those mornings where we've got to go, we've got to kind of slog through some stuff. And some of you may be like, this is the greatest. And others of you are like, I'm back in school Hey, here's the deal. This is a, you didn't ever sing like that in school, um, like we did this morning. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're back in school. We got, we got to learn some things because what we're going to talk about today is the way that people think. If you don't understand the way that people think, you will not understand the way that the world is trying to conform you to think. And if you don't understand the way that people think, you cannot bring the gospel to them, whether it's your own children, who, by the way, the world is trying to conform Okay, this thing right here is designed to conform you and your family and your children. Now, primarily right now, it's mostly to conform you to buy crap. Can I say that? Well, I did. To buy stuff, okay? That's mostly what it's conforming you to these days. But now there's a lot more and more and more they want to conform your ideology, your politics, your religion, how you feel about the Israel and Hamas conflict. You get on TikTok, and you're going to get pushed China's view of what you should think about that. If you get on Instagram, you might get pushed somebody else's view. But they're going to try to conform the way you think, and they are very good at it. So if you don't understand how they think, how people think, how you might have been infected to think, you're not going to be useful when it comes to the Great Commission. Proclaiming the gospel, making disciples for Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded. For lo, He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Right? You can't do that if you don't even understand why you think certain things. And so we're going to walk through some of the history of how we think so that you can understand where we are today because it's actually quite fascinating to me, but it's very important. It's very important. So let's kind of get into it. And we're going to start with what I started with in the first one of these, which is we talked about the authority that we give to other people to believe the things that they tell us are the truth. So I talked about like at the beginning, it's parents, right? Your parents say, don't touch that. It's hot. And after the first time you go, oh yeah, right. You, next time they say it's hot, you probably believe them. Probably. Some of you, it took more than one time. We have a little girl that lives in our house right now. Um, 
her, her mom, a mom and two kids, and the little girl, uh, I'm not going to say her name, but we'll just use a random, we'll call her Tahani. <laughs> you could probably tell Tahani 10 times it was hot. She's going to be like, this time they're lying. That's just the way that Tahani is, okay? So it's going to be a little harder for her, but she's going to be a little fighter. And once we get her on the team, she's going to bring the gospel, Okay. Um, sometimes, sometimes the ones that can be the most difficult are also the most hardcore sold out Christ followers. So let's, let's pray that for her before she burns her hand off. She does have a broken finger right now. So you figure it out anyway, not because of punishment. She shut it in the car door. So, um, we listened to our parents, right? But then we figured out that they weren't always telling us the truth. My mom used to tell me when I was a kid, so we'd take baths when I was a kid. I still do sometimes. Yeah and that's okay with me. Try it. It's amazing. Your own filth just in the water. It's just, it's really something. No. When I would take a bath and I was a kid, my mom would tell me to get out of the bath before you hit the drain thing. Because if you hit that drain while you're in the bath, you are going down that drain and those little holes and you're going to turn into spaghetti. Lies. Lies. It did not happen. I, uh, I, to this day, I'm like, I'll turn that thing on right now. <laughs> I'm still like, but, uh, you know. So I knew my mom didn't always tell me the truth, right? Because no one ever turned in spaghetti. I think I, she has six, there's six of them, six girls, my mom's family. And I think she would tell me that there was seven, right? <laughs> one is now spaghetti because of that. So that's where they learned it. I don't remember if she said that. You can ask her about it afterwards. What is the place of authority in what people believe, and how has that changed over time? Well, we got to go back in time a little bit to kind of before the 1500s, before the 1500s. So this is before Pastor Dave's time. This is (laughs) what we would call the pre-modern era, pre-modern era. Okay, the pre-modern era is everything up until the 1500s. So it covers a lot of ground, the pre-modern era. And when I, when I talk about the pre-modern or the modern or the post-modern or the meta-modern eras, what I'm primarily talking about in those eras is the way that people during those times came to believe the things that they believed. What was the authority for the things they believed? What made them believe the things that they believed? Okay, that's important. And you may be like, Why? Why is that important? So it's called epistemology, okay? It's a, it's a study of knowledge. What, how do we come to knowledge? What can we know? Those kinds of questions. So when we're talking in terms of those eras, one of the main things we're talking about is what makes knowledge? What makes somebody know? And so in the pre-modern era, primarily what made knowledge was the authority of religious leaders and the authority of uh, Scripture, okay? Whatever that might have been. For, for a particular religion, that's what made, uh, oops, did this, no, it's still working, okay. That's what made people believe the things that they believed. So you basically had a priest or a shaman or a whatever, or the Bible, or the Upanishads if you're Hindu, or, or so on. You had those kinds of things. That was where authority came from. So it was, if, the, if you're a believer and the Bible said it, it was true, and that was where you got knowledge. That's how you knew that things were true, okay? So that was how it went 
for thousands of years. The primary purveyors of knowledge were the priests, the pastors, the imams, the whatever you had. They were the ones who primarily brought knowledge. People believed them in what they said. That meant that the church played a very large role in the community. In fact, if you go and you look at uh, settlements in the Western world before the 1500s and you go to the center of the town, you will almost always find a church because the church was the center of the life for the community. That's where, that's where things happen, and it's also where knowledge came from. Now, the problem with that was that the church took over a lot of the responsibilities that would have been in the past the place of the state, the government, right? The secular government. And so that meant that the government sort of needed the permission of the church or the favor of the church to be considered legitimate, generally speaking. Um, so the church ended up having a lot of power in sort of the daily lives of basically all people. Now, you don't have to read that much history to know how that turned out. Uh, it did not turn out well. Uh, there were people who had roles in the church who used their roles to do harm. Now, there are still people in the church, when I say the church at large, who, who make some pretty big mistakes and do some pretty big harm. They're, they're, the problem with Christianity is that it's full of Christians, and the problem with Christians is that they're sinners in need of a Savior. It's the nature of what a Christian is. And so some of, sometimes mistakes are made, and people are put into roles, and they abuse those roles, and they harm people. Well, when that happens in a, in a church that's, that's small, the most that the harm usually causes within a you know, relatively small thing. When that happens and the church is in charge of a country, pretty bad things go on. So, so that tended to happen. And the church began to lose its grip on its authority for knowledge and its trustworthiness in people's lives as people in leadership roles in the church became corrupt and untrustworthy as they connected with the state and all of a sudden gold instead of God became sort of the thing, right? And so you had these corrupt people and so then you had the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which is what this church and most, all the churches that you see except for Catholic churches or Eastern Orthodox come out of the Reformation period, which was a time when we said, yeah, this whole thing where the church is in complete control and there's this hierarchy and there's all these things that are very unbiblical and they're using it to do things like sell indulgences where if you come to the church and pay a certain amount of money, you can go out and sin. Some of you are like, is that credit card or is that check? No, that's unbiblical is what that is and evil. And that's what the church was doing. You can see how it would be a good moneymaker, right? Uh, people think, oh, I'm, I, I automatically, I can go out and do this sin. Yeah, they made a lot of money doing it. Pretty good fundraiser, pretty hellacious, demonic idea. And so what happens, the Reformation came out of that. At the same time as that was happening, as the Reformation was happening, there was also a change in the philosophical world, okay, the world of ideas, in the university and so on, about the way people started thinking about knowledge. And we come to a fella by the name of Rene Descartes. Sounds very French because it is very French. He's a French fellow. He was a Christian, as almost everybody was at the time. Uh, and he started thinking about truth 
and authority. And he started thinking about knowledge and how we came to it. And we come up with the famous line of Rene Descartes, cogito ergo sum. Some of you might want to correct my Latin pronunciation there, but no one knows how to pronounce Latin because it's a dead language, so keep it to yourself. Cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. Uh, we've all heard this one, and we go, duh. But that was, that's what happened. What he did, he started thinking, how could I even know that I exist? He's trying to figure knowledge, right? That's what he's doing. Well, how do I know anything? So he's like, well, I know because I can see stuff. Well, that could be a dream. Well, I could be on drugs, or I could be whatever. I could be just a, and what he comes down to is the thing that you can know for sure is if you're thinking, you exist. Even if you're a mind in space that all the rest of this is being created for, you hear people talk about living in a simulation now. <laughs> Stupid philosophy. But that idea, he, he, got, he went all the way back to, if I can think, then I know that I am. And then what he did was he started building out from that how we can know other things, including how we know that God exists and so on. But he started from that foundation. Instead of starting from here in the scripture where people had started before, he started with himself. Now, he didn't think of this as an anti-Christian way of thinking. He's just doing philosophy, okay? He's just doing philosophy. What happens is the, the door cracks and what floods in is from the pre-modern to what we call the modern era. Now, most of you think of the word modern as happen, you know, recent, but that's not what modern means in philosophy. Modern means in philosophy, the era from about 1500 to about 1945. Okay, so about 550 years, give or take, of time, we start the modern era. The modern era. And in the modern era, we have this Cartesian, Descartes, framework that starts to build into this idea that the reason of man and woman is strong enough and good enough not only to create knowledge, understand knowledge, but that it will be so good, it's going to be so good that we will get a utopia, a perfect society. We will solve all problems. We will all live in peace and harmony, right? We're going we're gonna to be like those little diaper babies that are on the clouds, like the heaven of the Middle Ages. Like, wh who wanted to go to that heaven? What do they need the diapers for, first of all? I don't know. Well, I don't know what's going on with that. But that idea, we're going to be in perfection. We are going to create the perfect world. Why? Because our reason is so strong. Going from authority of Scripture to authority of reason is what defined the modern era. So it goes on and on for about 550 years. And people, uh, modern science comes out of it, the scientific method. Lots of good things come out of it, which is to say we, we valued reason. And the thing is, Scripture had always valued reason. Come let, come, let us reason together. Yeah, that's in Isaiah 700 and uh, 2,000 and 2,200 years before the modern era began, God was talking about reason, okay? Reason's always been important. We have the mind of Christ. God has given you a mind. We think reason is incredibly important, but to think that it's the highest thing is a great mistake, and to think that you can use your reason to know more than God is a huge mistake, and it's the one that Eve had a little problem with, right? No, no, he's, he's, he's tricking you. You can know better than him. If you do this, you'll be like him. And what did we do? We said, or our reason can replace God. We get into the 1800s and a fellow named Friedrich Nietzsche says, 
God's dead. Why? We've killed him. Why? Our reason. We don't need him anymore. We have no need of God. That's the idea. Of course, Nietzsche went crazy and died. And Nietzscheism is insane. But that's where it went. That's where modernism went. And it was, and it was strong. And we got to, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution, lots of technology, lots of things like that came out of this age of modernity. Now, if you were born before 1945, and some of you were, you were alive in the modern era. In fact, if you're in this room now and you were born before 1945, you don't have to raise your hand. We can see. I'm kidding. We're going to lose every person who's, you know. You have been alive through three of the four eras of human history. That's how fast they've moved since then. That's how fast they've moved since then. First one, 5,500 years. Second one, 550 years. The third one, 78 years. And the fourth one's been going on for a little while and will probably morph again soon. They thought they're going to solve everything. They thought they're going to have this perfect world, utopia. They clearly had not understood the wisdom of the Bible in Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. All that nonsense is vanity. They believed that they would discover truth primarily through reason. They had no need for scripture. They had no need for authority. This is where there's a rise in intellectual atheism. It sort of rises and falls and rises and falls, and it's continued to sort of do that. When I say rise, it's never been more than a percent or two of people, but that's the, they tend to be very loud, so you hear more about them. So they believe peace, comfort, all of that is going to come because of the discoveries that their reason had found and would find. As the modern era progressed, the role of the church was greatly diminished. In some ways, that was good. The church had taken on jurisdictions, Okay, areas of authority that it was never intended to have in the past. And so it was good for it to recede from that. But it started receding in more than just that. We started valuing the mind more than God. And we saw a system sort of like the British system, which still exists. I was over there. They still have a state church. If you are in England, you have an official church of the state to this day. It's called the Church of England. If you saw King Charles get christened, then you saw the archbishop, or what? I didn't watch it. I don't care about their royal people. Um, but if you saw that, you saw probably the archbishop involved because they have a state church. But does that church have any real authority? No. Is it a great bastion of spirituality? Not really. There are some real Christians involved in it, but yeah. Then we saw the American system where natural law and Judeo-Christian values and truths were very important in the founding, but the church and the state were, were going to have separate jurisdiction in people's lives, mostly because people were worried about states like the British system and other systems in Europe, where when the state had control, they persecuted anyone who didn't believe exactly the way that they did, right? And so they left that. Then we saw the French Revolution, which was very bloody, very humanistic, and largely atheistic. And then towards the end of the modern era, we see things like the atheistic state, the Soviet Union, right? Mao and the Soviet Union, Pol Pot, all of the, uh, the major like communistic, atheistic, they, those all come out of modernism. That's where they all come out of. 
So then the modern era comes to an end. For somewhat obvious reasons, it failed. The experiment failed. You may know, you're like, well, did they win? No. Is life perfect? No. They didn't win. They didn't figure it out. They didn't figure it out. They tried to fix a fallen, sinful world with reason instead of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that can fix the world. We need grace, not more reason. And so it didn't work. And they figured that out when World War I came around first in the early part of the 1900s, and around 20 million people died. After 500 years of modernism and great thinking and reason and science, we end up having 20 million people die over some nonsense. Utopia? No. So modernism takes a big hit. Well, not too many years later, it ended for good. In around 1945, at the end of the Second World War, when the lives of about 50 million people were ended. And the science and the reason of the modern era, the highest thing that it came up with was atomic bombs. And they started figuring out, you know, maybe we don't use our reason any better than the corrupt religious leaders used their authority. And we got a problem here. We keep looking to man and we keep failing. And so we entered the era of post-modernism where modernism had a high view of man and reason and a generally positive outlook for the future, postmodernism took over with another view entirely. The postmodern attitude was one of skepticism, cynicism, and apathy. The mood went sour, generally speaking. Now, these are not clean lines. It's not like in 1945, everybody went from feeling modernistic to feeling postmodernistic. There's actually quite a lag for the people in these things. The, the movements tend to start in academia among philosophers and those kinds of fancy people, and they don't tend to really take hold for a number of years afterwards. So I'm not saying in 1945, everybody was sad. In fact, in this country, a lot of people were very happy because things were going quite well for America after World War II. Didn't look as good for the Germans, didn't look as good for the Japanese and those who had lost, uh, whose countries were in rubble. But for some people, they didn't just instantly go into skepticism. It just, it creeped in over time. In the early days of postmodernism, people were, like I said, they were doing pretty well economically in America, and, and the culture was sort of focused on the American dream. The American dream. And the American dream can be summed up by the two main values that a, that a man of God named Francis Shavers passed away. He believed these values were rampant at that time. These are the values. This is what he says. The danger is obviously even greater when the two main values so many people have are personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. What he's saying is that the thing that drives people's behavior is getting personal peace. Nobody's bothering me and I'm wealthy. And if you think about every advertisement that you have seen over your life, how many of them are pushing you in that direction? This will bring you, in some way or another, personal peace and affluence. Right? The American dream. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to move to the suburbs where there's more personal peace and I have more affluence. When I work for hopefully as short of a time as I can until I can retire, then I'm going to go somewhere sunny and spend the rest of my life 
uh, you know, picking up seashells or playing pickleball or whatever, right? And that's, that is the dream, baby. Personal peace and affluence. That's what people were all about. That's a dangerous thing to chase after in a fallen world, an especially dangerous thing to chase after when it is the opposite of what Christ has called us to chase after. Dream didn't work, though, for everyone. And even those who attained it didn't necessarily find it satisfying. So the children sort of of that generation became the hippies of the 60s and the 70s, and their children became the children of the 80s and 90s, like myself, and their children became millennials and Generation Z, like some of you, each group becoming progressively more jaded with the ideas, both kind of of modernism and the American dream, the most recent generation seeing the whole thing as a complete impossibility. In fact, if you jump onto your Instagram reels for, uh, I don't know, maybe five minutes, you're probably gonna come across some reel from some Gen Zer laughing about how his parents bought their home in 1995 for $5. And now they will never own a house because every house, every small house costs a million dollars, right? That's, you'll see a lot of reels about that kind of thing. And they're not that far off, right? Economically, we've kind of destroyed the world. You've gotta pay people at McDonald's $15, $16, $17 an hour so that they can afford maybe with a couple people an apartment. When I was young, we made very little. I think I made $4.90 when my first job, an hour, which some of you were like, that's a lot of money. You're from the modern era. Remember, I'm, I'm younger than that. $4.90 an hour is what I made when I started, and $4.90 an hour could get you something. I paid a dollar. 89 cents is the lowest I remember gas being, 89 cents a gallon. Who remembers it being 89 cents a gallon? Anybody? Okay, you can see how old we are. I could, I literally, my friend Jamie over here who I grew up with, we went to church together growing up. I don't know if you remember this, but you could find change in your car and go to the gas station. Like you, I got like a dollar 16 in my car, and I could actually get gas that would get me somewhere with that, okay? This has just turned into, it's like, kids, get off my lawn, I'm old. Listen, it was different. A, if a Gen Zer goes into their car and finds change, they're not gonna get any gas, right? It's not gonna happen. So things have changed for them, and the American dream does not seem reasonable for the generations that exist right now. No, don't, don't come at me and email me about how America's the best way. I know. I'm not saying it's better anywhere else. I'm just saying it's tough. And I'm saying the idea that a utopia exists or will exist because we keep making everything better is false. And the idea that our governments and so on are gonna make things better is false. That's a modern dream. And then postmodernism sort of rejected that. Just sort of rejected that. People trust things less and less. The big postmodern show I would consider to be Seinfeld. Wildly successful. What was the show about? Nothing. The characters cared about nothing and generally did nothing. That was the show. Hilarious show. But so postmodern, right? So postmodern, the fact that there were, it was like, it, it's, it's the, you know, if you think of the song, that's, that's the generation song. It's a Nirvana song, right? Here we are now, entertain us. Right? That's the idea. What, what, what are we doing here? 
Here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now, entertain us. That's sort of the Gen X theme. That's a, that's a postmodern anthem, right? The, it doesn't work. It's not working. The dreams of modernism have failed. So in postmodernism, we're saying, what are we going to do? And even when we get the money, we're not happy. And we see celebrities that commit suicide, having everything that everybody thinks they would ever want. And we recognize maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe, maybe this idea that we can get somewhere by knowing certain kinds of stuff isn't going to work. And in fact, there's something called sin and brokenness. And that's the, that's the real enemy. And that's already been conquered by Jesus Christ. But there's a submission part of that. See, if we think we can do something through reason and we can get somewhere through reason, then we don't need Jesus. That's why Jesus keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed away. Once we realize we need Jesus, then we can actually use our reason for what it's meant to be used for in the first place. So on we go with postmodernism, rejecting what we call meta-narratives, big stories, right? Stories like religions or philosophies, right? Christianity is a meta-narrative. So is every other religion. It's a meta-narrative. Lots of philosophies, including postmodernism, are meta-narratives. They're big stories about how the world works, Right? Those are rejected in general, except for postmodernism, which isn't rejected. But generally speaking, the rest of them are. Truth is no longer sort of an objective thing, something that is out there that, that you either believe or don't believe, but it's true whether you believe it or not. And truth becomes a personal thing, my truth or your truth. Right? The, the idea of my truth or your truth would have been meaningless to people in the pre-modern world and to people in the modern world. In the postmodern world and the post-postmodern world, which we'll talk about in a second, those are totally legitimate terms. Well, that's my truth. Well, that's not a thing. I mean, you can have your truth about whether you like strawberry ice cream. You can have a truth about that. Yes, you do, or no, you don't. Okay. But you can have a truth about whether I'm standing here. That's just an objective truth. Postmodernism starts to reject that, right? It rejects that, so religions are out. Most philosophies are out. In the pre-modern and the modern world, Christianity is generally seen as a good thing, positive thing, by almost everyone. Even if they were not themselves practicing Christians, they saw it as a positive thing. You know, they might refer to it as Judeo-Christian values or something like that, but it was positive. In the post-modern and post-postmodern, which we'll talk about world, Christians were labeled as ignorant, bigoted, and authoritarian, all right? That's, that's the idea of a Christian from the postmodern's viewpoint. So we reject objective truth in favor of feelings, opinions, and personal stories and personal truths, except for some things, just so we're clear. There are a few things that aren't about your truth, and those are the pet virtues of the postmoderns. The postmoderns have their pet virtues, right? They're, they're popular morality. So sexual freedom... Uh, environmental outrage, those, those have been real hot among postmoderns. Uh, so those issues became objectively true and one-sided, right? When it came to, say, for instance, LGBTQIA plus issues, I don't know if they've added anything since the last time I learned it. I don't want to learn it again. That's, I'm going to use that one. You could only believe one way about those. That was to affirm and celebrate. If you believed any other way, you were definitely wrong, and that couldn't be your truth. There's only one truth on that issue. Or, or environmental issues, those tended to be that way too, where you better toe the line or else. The same people who would say with one breath, there is no truth, 
with the other breath would say that if you don't affirm the LGBTQI thing, and there, and then there's several things here, not just that, okay? Uh, you also need to be pro-choice. You also need to be, whatever the, the pet issues of postmoderns are, if you didn't affirm those, you were not only wrong, but you were evil, ignorant, bigoted, and a jerk who was on the wrong side of history. So you, so well, there was no truth except for the ones that, that postmoderns wanted to be true. You need to understand that because that's part of why postmodernism has disintegrated. Um, and turned into something new. But truth became relative. So the postmodern era is ending. It's in the process right now. You are in the process between two eras right now. The ending of postmodernism and the beginning of something new. Of course, the clearest reason that postmodernism ends and is ending is because it doesn't make any sense, has not made the world better. And frankly, people are tired of cynicism, apathy, and sadness. That's mostly what postmodern brought. It's like the Eeyore philosophy. <laughs> People want to be like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> you know? It's more fun. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? Who wants to be like Eeyore all the time? Postmodern is like Eeyore. <laughs> that was my generation, Generation X. Everything sucks. <laughs> So people are kind of rejecting it now. They're looking for something new. And the thing they're calling this new one, I don't know if it'll stick, is metamodernism. It doesn't have anything to do with meta, the Facebook thing. Uh, just metamodernism. And the idea is they're going to take the best parts. This always works, right? The best parts of postmodernism, premodernism, and modernism. And they're going to put them together. I don't think they're going to be the best parts. I think they're going to be the most convenient parts. But that's the idea. It's 1123. Well... <laughs> uh, yeah. eh, we're going to keep going for a minute. The, the, the label for this will, will be forthcoming right now. We'll call it metamodernism. The philosophers and the artists and those types will work this out for some time. Um, but basically what I see is they have a desire to have sort of a happier version, going from the Eeyore to the Winnie the Pooh version of, of postmodernism. So it's like postmodernism on Prozac. That's the idea of the new one, right? The happier postmodernism. Uh, the attempt will be to continue to hold a view of truth that allows people to pursue personal peace and affluence, which is always a goal. In all of these systems, people have wanted that. And they can now do that however they want to define that personally within their truth. Uh, postmoderns are notoriously illogical when it comes to being consistent, right, about the rejection of truth. We just talked about it. They have the truths they like, those are real truths, and the truths they don't like, those are not truths, right? Those are your truth, or they're just not truth. That's how they do it. I think that pattern of thinking is going to continue. It shows every sign in sort of this, this early metamodern era of continuing to be that way. When I first started teaching on this stuff, metamodernism wasn't really a thing at all. We were still heavily in the postmodern thing, and now we really are moving into this other place. And what's going to happen, I think, is that they're going to create a new religion. It's going to have a religious, uh, they won't call it a religion, but it will have all the earmarks of religion, right? It has its own priests already. How do you know? Well, they used to, before you could pay for it, have blue check marks next to their name on Twitter, right? Um, it, they, they have the people who speak for the culture, and you basically stay in line with those people. And they will even destroy each other if one of them gets out of line with the orthodoxy or the dogma 
of where the metamoderns are at at that moment. And so they're going to have that, which is very much like a harsh version of religion. So you will follow their rules. I talked at the beginning about conformity. You will conform to their rules and to their authority. And if you don't follow their truths, you will be punished. You will be punished. When I first started, like I said, teaching about this stuff, it was a postmodern thing. It was like, yeah, I, I feel like some level of persecution is probably coming for Christians certain ways, and we could see it in some ways. It's now being enforced, okay? Enforcement is on the rise. And depending on where you live, it's worse, okay? The, the, the further a country has gone out of post-Christian, the more metamodern they've become. So in England, I remember hearing about somebody getting arrested for saying something negative on social media about the transgender flag. Um, and, you know, they don't have free speech like we have here. Uh, and really, almost no place has free speech like we do. You guys don't realize how good you have it here in, in a lot of ways. Right now, right now, you have it. I can't promise what's going to happen in the future. But free speech and what the government can do are very different than what society can do to you. Okay? And so what we will see is an enforcement like we do, whether it's cancel culture, whether it's you can't get that certain job or whatever, uh, that's going to that's gonna be going on. So they'll enforce what they call tolerance. You've heard this for years, right? Tolerance, be tolerant. You don't hear it quite as much anymore, but they'll enforce it. And when I say tolerance, I don't mean tolerance because there's a lot of doublespeak in postmodern and post-postmodernism. So tolerance, according to the dictionary in 2023, Cambridge Dictionary online, willingness to accept behavior and beliefs that are different from your own, although you might not agree with or approve of them. Behavior particularly and beliefs, accept. That is a, that is a very interesting word, accept, right? And this part here, that's going away. You don't really get to do that or that anymore, the different from your own. Basically, this is going to be the tolerance of the metamodern. Willingness to accept behaviors and beliefs of the world. I'm going to use the, the, the word world because that's the, the word scripture would use for it. That's what tolerance will be. What it used to be, this is from the uh, dictionary of what, 1828. So this is a few years back. Um, I had to, my dad had this one. I don't, no, I'm kidding. It's not that old. This is what he used to say. The power or capacity of enduring or the act of enduring. So tolerance used to mean that when you came to me and said, I believe this thing or I, I behave in this way, we go, okay, I'll endure it. I'll deal with it. Acceptance wasn't even on the radar. It wasn't in the town where the ballpark was. Not in the ballpark, nowhere near. It was, I'll endure it. I have the power to endure it. That's kind of language that we used for the word tolerance, which has now become to accept. So that's what will be enforced. Completely one-sided tolerance. You must tolerate the things that we tell you, and tolerance doesn't mean tolerance. Just cross that word out and put accept and affirm. You must do that. And we've seen this coming for a long time, right? We know, we know that. You must accept and affirm, or what? What will happen? Well, when you disobey the religious uh, priests of that era, the metamoderns, uh, you will be punished. 
dissent will not be allowed. It's largely the way it is in many places in our culture already. Go to any workplace. Go to a university. If I tried, you know, I have an education. I have the credentials. Um, I've taught. Uh, I've been a, an instructor at, in, at university. But if I went to a, a state university and tried to get a job, my... <laughs> hilarious. Uh, my qualifications would mean nothing. Because... I'm so far from towing the line on what the, what the world has to say that I would be rejected outright, you know? So it would be enforced against me. There's really no question about it. Those who are in academia now had better hold on to tenure. Tenure is a thing that says they can't fire you except for like major issues because they're not getting in anymore. That has been the case more and more. But it's not just there. Go to any normal workplace. You are going to be conformed into a culture. Conformed. You better not say certain things. You might be able to say, I go to church. But you couldn't say, well, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about the way you want to live your life sexually? What does the Bible say about the way you want to spend your money? What does the Bible say about the way you ought to treat that person? You're not going to do that in your workplace. There was a time when you could have. You can't now. You'd be rejected. No one wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear it. Let me just tell you something. I'm going to go, I'm going to flip past some things here because I want to, I'll come back to them later, but I want, I want to talk about one thing before we, before we end because it's 1130. Sorry. <laughs> Been gone a while. I have some things to say. Now, thanks be to God. This is 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Start there. You might be saying to yourself, and I've been Christ for a while, and I don't feel like I'm always triumphing. That's because you can't see everything. It's because you can't see the end. We read a verse before we did crown him with many crowns about Christ coming, white linen and the armies to defeat the nations. That's, that's what we have. That's where we, we are always led in triumph in Christ because we, our hope is in the resurrection of our bodies or the rapture of our bodies. Please God, anytime I'm ready to go. But there might be some time, some people here who have not met Jesus Christ and I want them to come with us too. So let's talk about that. When you are in Christ, you're always in triumph. Not as the world sees triumph because they don't know that they're dying and coming to an end. Our triumph is eternal. And what does it say? And through us, you think, you want to be important? You are important. Let me tell you one of the reasons that you're important as a Christ follower, because God is working through you. You are being used by the God of the universe. Somebody's like, I work for Apple. I work for God. Okay. Yeah, we work for God. Every Christ follower works for God. Through us, diffuses. Some of you have the essential oils. You know what that is. You put a little thing and heat up. It diffuses, right? There it goes into the air. Some of you have the Glade spray in the bathroom, Dad. And it diffuses, diffuses, right? The fragrance of his knowledge. 
What were we talking about this whole time? How do people come to knowledge? How do they come to knowledge? Do you know who diffuses knowledge, actual knowledge in this world? The church. You, Christ follower. I'm not talking about the kind of knowledge that makes iPhones. I'm talking about the knowledge that's the difference between life and death, spiritual life and death, hell and heaven, a family that worships Jesus and stays together in good times and bad times, a person who stays faithful, the quality of the relationships within the church, all those things, real knowledge, the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ that although we are sinners, we can be saved, all that. You're diffusing the fragrance of that knowledge in every place. If you're there, it's coming out. You're diffusing it. You smell. That's what this is saying. You smell like Jesus. You smell like Jesus. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is important. I've talked about this before. We've gone through this verse before. You don't smell good to everybody. You don't smell good to everybody. This is why you will experience the persecution and the punishment and the enforcement of the priesthood of metamoderns as we continue on. Those of you who are hoping for a big win in the world, you have not read the New Testament. You've gone to, you've gone to too many, you've been watching too many health and wealth sermons. What you can have is a joyous, glorious life among your brothers and sisters in Christ together as a shield wall walking forward. I can tell you, I am a joyful man and yet I have to experience all kinds of stuff and I'm a joyful man. I enjoy my life. Not because it's super easy and I have all this personal peace and affluence, although God has given me plenty of those things, but because I know that I get to do this. But here's what you need to understand. To the one this is the, those who are not being saved. These are those who are rejecting God. The one, you're the aroma of death leading to death. Why? Because Christ is the aroma of death to them leading to death because he, they're rejecting him. He offers life and they reject him. When you reject life, you have the opposite of it, which is death. So when you're the aroma of Christ, you're diffusing that aroma, you are de- the aroma, you smell like death to those who want to reject Christ. And they will not treat you well when you smell like death to them. But guess what? To the other, you're the aroma of life leading to life. Because to them, they need Jesus. They don't even know it yet, maybe, but they need Jesus. And when you go out and you let it diffuse, don't hide your light under a bushel. No, don't do it. Why? Because you've got to diffuse it. So that those, yes, when you diffuse it, you're going to get this first thing. And that's why people don't want to diffuse. I don't want to go in here and sh- 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 diffuse out. Because if I'm diffusing, the people who, for whom I'm the aroma of death are going to reject me. They're going to treat me badly. I'm not going to be socially liked by those people. And so I don't want to do it, missing the idea that you're also not diffusing the fragrance of life to those for whom it's life, leading to life. You hide the gospel, you hide who you are in Christ, and you don't smell like Jesus. And when you don't smell like Jesus, they might ignore you, but they're also not, you're not being used to bring them to Jesus Christ. 
The Father's not using you to draw them because you are hiding it. So you got to diffuse it. And who is sufficient for these things? None of us is the answer. It's a rhetorical question. None of us are sufficient for these things. We're not. So we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on to write, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. What would you do if you're peddling the word of God? You're the fragrance of life to everyone. You're the fragrance of life to everyone. You're going to have personal peace and affluence. God's going to give you victory and breakthrough with everything you ever do. Just say it, name it, claim it, whatever. That's peddling the word of God. Why? Because it's what people with their little itching ears want to hear. What I'm going to tell you is something grittier and more real and significant. And that is that you can be the aroma of life leading to life, but you better be ready to be the aroma of death leading to death because that judgment has to come. And you've got to be willing to be part of that too. Not because you want it or God wants it, but it is the reality that people need the choice. And sometimes you're the one who's used to bring that choice, to bring it out, put the odor in the air and see who's drawn to it and see who pushes away from it. That's your job. We don't peddle the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And that's what the word of God does. It speaks to you today. We've talked about how people think. Maybe you've had some of this thinking. Maybe you can identify yourself in one of those groups. Maybe it's not a group that you want to be identified with. Maybe you've got fears around this issue. The idea that there is enforcement of conformity with the world coming. It's already come. You've already felt it some. Well, let me tell you something. Two things. One, there is a victory you always have in Christ. And that is that you're, if you're in him, you're saved. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Right? For with the mouth one confesses unto righteousness, with the heart one believes unto salvation. That's what the scripture tells us. Romans 10, Romans 10, 9 through 10. You can go read it for yourself. It's very clear. You have victory. You are saved. Your hope is secure. You are stamped. You are sealed in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit. You have that. The second thing I want to give you that's a promise from the Lord is his church. The church is not passing away. This is, you are his bride. Okay? I'm not saying the church won't have issues. There have been churches with issues. Every church has issues. It's got people in it. But you have the church, so as you face all of this, let me just tell you that so long as the power of the Holy Spirit is in my life, I am with you. And if they come after you, they got to come after me. And if they come after me, I know so many of you that they got to come after too. And the way that we're going to deal with the persecution that will come isn't with some sort of frontal fight, culture, war, blah, blah. It's with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as metamodernism and all the new philosophies and, and false demonic theologies that come out happen, 
the philosophical world, the, the things that people think, and then they become what we see on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and television and whatever. As all that happens, that Christ church will stand strong preaching the gospel. Yes, at the outskirts. You're going to be pushed. We're going to be pushed to the outskirts. Where has Christ's church always been the most powerful and the most effective? At the outskirts. Don't believe me? How do you think the church grew in the first place? Go look at the church in China. Go look at the church in Iran or Saudi Arabia. Places where you're going to die if you're a Christian. You, you think that, that not being able to, to have the same friends is rough. How about we'll cut your head off? And yet the church thrives when the persecution is the hottest. Why? Because people can see the reality. Because it's impossible to hide the fragrance that leads some to life. And for some is death. When you're in a place where persecution is there, there's no point in hiding anymore. And let me just tell you, you have the shield wall of the church. We've talked about it many times. The Roman army wasn't strong because they had one super good guy. They were strong because they lined up in a shield wall. And behind them was another group. And behind them was another group. And when this guy got tired, he goes to the back and the next guy comes forward and I've got my shield protecting you and my sword and we're going to do the thing. And that's the church. As C.S. Lewis says, the demons are afraid because the church is like strong like an army with banners. That's what I can promise you. Not peace, personal peace and affluence in the sense that the world looks for it, but true peace from the Prince of Peace. A peace that surpasses understanding. Joy and hope and strength and power in the Holy Spirit. If you're willing to be the fragrance, watch the world change. Watch God work through you.